Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street partners with businesses, organisations and unions and social democratic parties across Australia and the globe uh, to train leaders, develop engagement strategies and empower people to organise for change. Uh, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to make a difference, inspire, give hope, because we need a bit of that right now and enable leadership to achieve their shared purpose. To find out how you can partner with Dunstreet, hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Hello, everyone. My name, as you know, is Stephen Donnelly, and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left political and cultural podcast that dives into the progressive issues of the day and the people leading them from both home and abroad. And we are at home this week. We're talking to a guy by the name of Andrew Weir, who uh, in his day job is a public servant, um, in his night job, uh, he wrote a book, so therefore he's now become what you'd call an author. And the book is called Solved, How Other Countries Have Cracked the World's Biggest Problems, and We Can Too. And in his book, he has looked overseas for how countries around the world are solving some of the policy problems when it comes to health, education, employment, the economy, jobs, inequality, you name it, Andy solved it. So if you want to find out how to solve all those problems, there are two things you can do. You can listen to this podcast and then you can buy his book. And I've got links to how you can get his book, which is called Solved. Um, His follow-up book, once he's solved all the problems, will be called Huzzah. Um, But you can buy this first book uh, online. Look at the link in the bio of today's episode and that will be able to go follow that and go buy the book and um, help Andy uh, feed his children. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, if, or your favorite uh, podcast app. And if you're using Apple Podcasts, don't forget to leave us a review and a rating, a positive one, hopefully. And for the updates, follow our Dunn Street socials on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And this episode was once again produced by Pamela Kirakides. Let's get to today's episode. <music> Okay, we're taping this one on a Friday morning in uh, downtown Melbourne. Two podcasts in the one week. Look at that. Just crushing out these episodes this week. Joining you on the line uh, from uh, downtown Melbourne as well is uh, the policy expert, author and public servant and author of a new book uh, called Solved, How Other Countries Have Cracked the World's Biggest Problems and We Can Too. Very positive title. I like that. Uh, Andrew Wee, welcome to Socially Democratic. G'day, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Um, I don't think I've spoken to you since the 1998 NUS National Conference. Uh, it's, it's quite a while ago now, so in a different a different life practically, but um, it's been, it has been a while. Long time between drinks. Mm, you yeah. were, you were, I actually, I remember it. Uh, it's quite funny <laughs> that we've come back and actually now are talking again because I am not a policy expert by any stretch of the imagination. And I'm going to ask you some really stupid questions on this episode. And I apologize to you, your intellect and the intellect of our audience as well. And you clearly are a policy expert, so much so you've written a goddamn book on it. Fast, go back 20-odd years or however long it's been since we last spoke. The Stephen Donnelly at that conference also was not a policy expert by any stretch of imagination <laughs> and would never, ever get up in front of the microphone of the students and tell them about some sort of policy position. However, you did a lot and you were quite impressive at that. So, you know, we've continued on our – we've been nothing but short of consistent over our careers. 
Yeah, yeah. Policy is something that I've been interested in. And um, look, in the end, government's all about achieving outcomes for you know for the people of the country and people of the world. And I think um, you know whether it be through politics or whether it be through policy work, I think you know, the actual impact that we all have through our engagement, you know, is the greater good. Is is what it, what it's all about, and what I've always been always been focused on. So the only other thing drawn to the the only thing I'll note before we move into the more substantive conversation today is from that conference. I had the president, the current president of the National Union of Students, on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and apart from talking about all the issues that are confronting tertiary students these days, at the end I had to delve into a bit of nostalgia and ask you a whole bunch of questions about NUS conferences today and are some of these traditions that we experienced in the 90s, are they still around? The T-shirts that the factions wear is still very much a thing and there's a big debate about what's going to be on the T-shirts before (laughs) conference, which is quite a good... And I'm glad that's still the case. But I actually have to note that I think it it was the 90... Eight conference in which a t-shirt was unveiled on the floor which was very very controversial which had the highlander uh photo and underneath it said there can only be one do you <laughs> and it was in a reference I don't, I, don't, I don't recall that i think it blacked out much of that right okay statement. i thought it was it, it was a swipe at another subgroup within a group and i just thought i remember if you're going to do your top five nus factions t-shirts of all time that is definitely in my top five it was very very smart and also a great tribute to a great film that was, a, that was another another era, wasn't it? Yeah, it wasn't. Okay, let's. <laughs> and now we're all grown up. We are, yeah. Well, we'll see. Um, I don't know if I've achieved that just yet. Okay, let's talk about the book. Uh, solved. How other countries have cracked the world's biggest problems, and we can too. First of all, what's the what was the genesis of uh, pulling this book together? Where did this inspiration come from? Uh, look, Stephen, I've been working. I've been working in public policy for you know twenty twenty odd years, and. Um, and frankly, you know, there's lots and lots of stuff in every bookshop, in every, you know, in the media, um, full of full of uh, analysis of problems that the world faces. There's no shortage of pundits talking about problems. There's no shortage of experts talking about problems. But there aren't that many that talk about solutions. Um, there are, you know, and it's, it's frankly a bit depressing, um, very easy to switch off and disengage. Um, and yet... From my knowledge and my work and research that I've been doing, you know, I knew that there'd been a number of countries all around the world um, that re- really achieving some great results, um, knocking off and really getting some great, great inroads into some of the biggest challenges that we face as a globe. And I thought, well, let's tell some of those stories. Let's let's engage. Let's give people some sense of what might be possible give people a sense of hope and optimism about um, our capacity as humans to solve some of these big problems and so that was my that was the genesis so really it's about collecting um collecting examples from around the world of those places and those jurisdictions that have really managed to crack some of those some of those big challenges whether it be climate change or inequality or you know or um demise of manufacturing um gender inequality what you name it um there is a country doing great stuff in, in dealing with each one of those i'm assuming a bit of travel was involved in the research for this book um how did you first work out who's doing the best work and then then making connections with people to go out there and find out more about it do you know most of it uh, there's almost no travel involved most of it was done um virtually 
um, you know, it was a, it was pre pre COVID when I did the work, but it was your um, pioneer. Your pioneer. But, but it was a pioneer, exactly. <laughs> um, so look, a couple of things. I mean, it, there's big data sets that are available through groups like World Bank and OECD and others, and it's very easy to create and to look through that data and see which which countries are achieving the best outcomes, and that might be outcomes at a point in time, or it might be most improved you know and so it's very easy to look at the top of that list and say hey this country is getting the best outcomes what is it about them that they're doing and so through a through a search of some of you know some of the some of the literature but but then really the 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 genesis of the book really was cold calling a whole bunch of people all around the world approaches out of the blue via email and setting, setting up a whole bunch of skype calls with with experts with academics, with policymakers, with even with, with everyday people in a lot of those countries, um, to really get their perspective on from from their point of view what made those countries successful, um, and then that then pointed me then into some further data analysis and academic literature. But it was really the essence, of, the backbone of the book is the stories that come from the people involved in the exercises through the book, and and. I, that's bloody good fun actually having a whole range of conversations with really interesting people from around the world. So it was a real pleasure to do. Um, who, uh, without you trying to um, categorize the most important to least important or most interesting to least interesting, who, who were some of the people that jumped out at you? Some of the stories that you sort of grabbed your imagination and attention. Yeah. One of my favorites was in the UK, actually. There's this guy, um, Jonathan Shepard, who is, an oral and maxillofacial surgeon, right? So he basically works in um, accident and emergency wards, um, putting people back together after they've been punched in the face, you know, like, yeah. or, you know, uh, you know, and um, and it was a fascinating guy. And what he discovered, you know, like 20, 30 years ago when he was doing, um, doing his work was that firstly he discovered that during the minor strikes of the 80s, um, that's more than 20, 30 years ago, um, during the minor strikes of the 80s, the, um, the the amount of violence that was presenting in the hospitals went up, and then and then what he discovered was that a lot of that violence was coming from a hand just a handful of pups, you know. So you know it was just as there's a handful of geographic locations. He also discovered that the police were unaware of about 75 percent of all violence that was that was actually taking place in that in that city the police just had no idea because people weren't reporting it to the police they weren't confident they didn't have you know they didn't see the the benefit of reporting it so so the insight there really was that um that if you want to get good data about violence um getting it from a hospital emergency ward is actually probably the best location to get data Mm. and so he then stuck that um that he got he forms um when he moved to cardiff he formed a, a little group called the um um, the Cardiff model, and then they basically got uh, together the, the the hospital people with the police, with the liquor licensing people, local council, and then they used this really amazing data analysis to look about where crime was happening, right down to individual premises, and and then were able to develop really bespoke strategies, which was really fascinating. And then he built on that, which was he discovered, for example, that. Um, People were getting glassed in the face by pint glasses. They were, you know, it was a huge number, like forty thousand across the UK were getting glassed in the face by by broken pint glasses. And he just, and he through a bit of further investigation, discovered that there was one particular type of pint glass, the nonic, um, which has got a little bulge at the top, um, and uh, that was one causing almost all the damage. Um, and so he did a. He, 
he worked with um, a handful of pubs and persuaded them in a random, you know, in a, in a randomized controlled trial to to introduce tempered glass pint glasses, and 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 found that it made a huge difference in reducing the amount of glassings. Then he persuaded the whole whole industry, whole pub industry, all through the UK to move to tempered glass and reduce the number of glassings in the UK by tens of thousands. You know, and so this one bloke just had this massive. You know, outside of his policy domain, I mean, his domain is you know surgery, and he's just absolutely had a massive impact on violence in in you know in, across the country. And you find stories like that that are quite incredible. I think uh, that is incredible. You're also giving me PTSD from the '80s as well. Not that I was of drinking age in the 1980s, but uh, certainly as a young man going back to um, Scotland and hearing tales of my uncle's uh, <laughs> stories in pubs in, in, in Glasgow. Uh, yeah, it was a different time. Um, Let's, uh, some of the topics that you've, I mean, where do, you, where do you start when you want to start to delve into policy frameworks by topic? Like you have to put a cap on it because you could, it could, the book could be endless. So where, what, where yeah. did you sort of focus your energy and attention? Yeah, look, I sort of asked myself, what are the, what are, what are the big problems facing the world? And, um, and trying to get a bit of a representative sample across the social, the economic, the environmental, um, and ensure that in 10 chapters I've got a, a good cross-section of big problems that we're tackling. Um, and they range from uh, carbon abatement to um, in, you know, and learning from Denmark through to um, gender inequality in Iceland through to high school, primary school and high school education in Singapore and health outcomes in, 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 in South Korea. Um, yeah, there there is there's a huge range of outcomes of, that I that were really interesting to study, and but you know like I did chapter by chapter, and I found the best examples. But then there's a whole bunch of themes that I found after the fact that ran through all of them, and and it really led me, you know, there's a couple of concluding chapters in the book that really led me to some really big conclusions about what the role of government and what we should be learning from that, and you know, and and. What was really interesting in, in all of that was that across the board, the countries that are doing well, um, the the Nordic and Northern European countries, you know, so that's the, the you know the Scandinavians plus Germany and you know and, and Austria and a few other and Belgium and Netherlands, they are getting in almost every area outcomes that far exceed the Anglo countries of UK and the US, Australia, Canada. New Zealand, uh, in every policy domain, and that's not just the social domains, in the economic domain, you know, and they're getting better economic growth, they're getting higher living standards, higher incomes, um, at the same time as achieving lower you know, lower inequality and getting better environmental outcomes. Yeah. And when you look across the board, it's countries, you know, countries that have got a slight, got a higher tax take, that are redistributing, that are taking, taking um, a bit more tax, redistributing it, um, they're actually supporting vocational and other other training. They're focused on public health. Um, all of those things are actually complementary and mutually reinforcing in terms of yielding, yielding better outcomes. Um, when you invest in the education of people, um, it leads to higher productivity. Um, you know, when you have a, uh, an economy that focuses on participation in the workforce and supporting everyone regardless of you know whether they've got a disability or they're a recent migrant or whatever if they're all participating that leads to better economic outcomes uh you know, so there's some 
and really big themes. Trust is the other big one that runs through, um, you know, and it's quite relevant for all, I think, all governments and all political parties to think about trust is such an important thing. And, and one of the reasons, whether it be, the, you know, the trust in the ability of the populace to report crime to the police and work with the police, as we've seen in the US lately, um, that tr trust matters, whether it be... Um, bipartisan approaches to climate change as we see in Denmark um, trust matters you know so you know in almost every domain trust plays a really big role in supporting policy outcomes um, and trust is such a fragile thing so I think you know when yeah. we govern and in, and in opposition when we work through that we really have to be conscious of things like that. It's interesting you said trust then because when you first raised that in my mind I was thinking about trust from the constituency uh, to our elected uh, officials and government, but it sounds like it's actually go that trust has to go both ways. Yeah, but it's it's trust in a whole range of areas. It's trust people. It's the trust of the citizenry in government. It's the trust of the citizenry in each other. It's the trust in in you know in trust in police. It's trust in institutions. It's um it's trust that we going that we think our politicians are going to be able to behave like grown-ups um, you know it's mm. you know it's it's all of that sort of um, it's not one not just one type of trust they're all because they're all related you know uh, and as a society if we're fearful of our neighbor neighbors where it's highly likely we're not going to be trusting our governments either you know so it's you know trust trust is quite a a, a concept that pervades everything um and it, and really it's you know it's not always government that can actually secure that trust it's it's, it's sort of a cultural culturally embedded phenomenon as well but government certainly plays a leadership role let's dive into some of these uh examples of strong policy um initiatives and outcomes that you've discovered in your book um and um Let's not give it all away because we want people to read the damn thing as well. Um, <laughs> so uh, just tease us. Um, so let's start. The one I want to start with, first of all, and I think we'll cover off, we'll probably cover off climate change, climate change. Sorry, I'm sounding like Donald Trump at the moment. Climate change, uh, gender equality, uh, health, education. I want to start with jobs. And in particular, you mentioned manufacturing before. Victoria yeah. has had a strong manufacturing um, industry for a very, very long time, and that has fundamentally changed over the 80s, 90s, uh, 2000s with tariffs and stuff. Um, point to uh, examples around the world where you've discovered that manufacturing has maintained, because someone's still building stuff, right? But where are we finding countries where yeah. they're building stuff, but they're actually paying their workers decent rates of pay as well? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting in, in Australia, manufacturing, you know, has declined, you know, from about, you know, what was that 13, 14% of the economy in the, in the mid nineties down to, you know, about six or 7% now. Um, you know, and, and that's been the case in a whole bunch of developed countries and whether it be the U S or France or Canada or the UK, you know, that, that trend across the board. And that's been, you know, certainly the story we tell ourselves is that's been because of the, rise of low-cost manufacturing in, in, in countries such as China. Um, but the, but in a country like Germany, for example, um, Germany has sustained its manufacturing share of the economy over the same period. It's, it's, it's got about 23% of the economy um, that is um, manufacturing amounts to, and that's, and that's been sustained right through the last 20, 30 years. And, and the rise of China has actually um, been 
good for Germany, good for Germany because Germany exports more products to China than it imports from China. Because if middle class in middle class people in China would still prefer to drive a BMW to a Chinese made car, all those you know all those factories in China, uh, their assembly lines you know are made from German componentry. You know, they've got German German robots on the assembly lines, and you know and and you know so that sort of thing. So those machine tools and others that are coming from Germany matter, and and the focus of Germany. German manufacturing has really been on quality, um, developing products that are the best in the world in their particular niche. And, um, and that makes all the difference. They're not trying to outcompete China and Bangladesh on cost. They're not trying to be low cost because their workers are, are very well paid. Um, and, uh, and so it's about producing products that no one else in the world can produce. But I think there's a couple of things we learned from Germany. Firstly, massive, massive investment and support for vocational training. Uh, vocational training is highly prestigious in Germany. Um, and uh, you're getting hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people a year coming through doing vocational training in the manufacturing space. Whereas in a country like Australia, we only we have apprenticeships in a small range of trades. In Germany, they do apprenticeships in a whole range of different areas where people can do an apprenticeship in manufacturing and going to manufacturing, come out of school, go into manufacturing and do things like whether it be for procurement or marketing or a whole range of things associated with manufacturing um, they're doing apprenticeships in so that when, you know, if and when their business turns down, they've actually got a qualification. They're, they've got a, the ability to end up in another, in another manufacturing role because they've got a qualification. The other thing that's really important is about... Um, is I guess the industrial framework in Germany plays a really big role and it's actually a great strength of Germany. It helps them become more competitive, would you believe, um, with, with a significant um, union, union, rep, union share in the economy. Um, you've got a corporate governance framework in Germany that basically mandates employee representation on the boards of companies. So you've got a, any company with more than 2,000 employees that's listed on the stock exchange has to have 50% employee representation on the board. Wow. That'd be like... <laughs> that would it's break incredible. the brains you know? of Australian companies if they did that. Yeah. Yeah. You imagine with BHP with 50% CFMMEU representation on it, it'd be, it'd be incredible, you know. Um, and clearly that's a different cultural, um, cultural context. Germany comes from that very much... Uh, a stakeholder economy rather than a shareholder sort of economy. Um, but, but interestingly, that focus enables German companies to be quite competitive because in responding to challenges such as, you know, low-cost Eastern European manufacturing or, or, or the need to re- deal with downturns such as the global financial crisis, the, uni- the unions and, and the employee representatives are actually part of the decision-making in that company and are quite prepared to say, we're going to um, back off on our wage demands for a temporary period so that the firm can stay competitive or we're going to go to four days a week for a period of time, you know, because we, you know, we don't, we'd prefer people didn't lose their jobs. And, and there's this great collaboration between government and, and the unions and the companies so, so that during the global financial crisis, they had this thing called Kurzarbeit, which is short work, where the German government, a bit like JobKeeper in a lot of ways, the German government funded part funded the wages of people who agreed to go part-time during um during uh 
the um, global financial crisis. And then the workers then used that time to go and get retrained, you know, a couple of days a week. Came back, so after the crisis was over, they came back more highly qualified. <laughs> no one had lost their job. Um, and so that union government employer collaboration enables Germany to really go from strength to strength. It's not as adversarial. Um, I could go on about Germany. Yeah, it's, I know. Quite, it's, quite, it's quite an incredible story. I, uh, maybe we just do a German podcast. I, I find that interesting because there is, um, I mean, how we could do another po- you could do another podcast with a, with you with a, someone from the union movement as well on this. But the yes, the word adversarial that's something that is definitely I've picked up in my recent years of engaging with uh, not so much German actually, but more Scandinavian unions about their approach to their relationship with employers and with government. That it is not it's collaborative. It's not adversarial. Mm. Um, and I always feel like in the Australian union movement, adversary, uh, collaborative is a dirty word. You know, if yeah. you're a union that's yeah. collaborative with employee, employers and government, you know, you're, you're a scab union almost. Yeah. Well, I think it's an interesting question. You know, the question that I would put or a German union probably would put, which is how can the union help the company become more competitive? Mm. How, can the, how can the union movement help the economy become more competitive? You know, and that, you know, is at the heart of the German approach. Don't hear that so much in Australia. No, no, you don't. Um, let's uh, keep moving through the, uh, the list. Let's go to climate change. Sure. Um, and this is one that I find interesting just because, like, from an organizing standpoint, you know, climate change is constantly, as we, as we move into an election cycle, climate change is always talked about, you know, it's an, it, this is going to be the climate change election. Uh, and people are going to vote, mm. vote with their feet when it comes to climate change. Uh, but it's something that we, we're not solving. Well, certainly the, the organisational side of the, the, this bargain, we're not solving that. Um, and I've often wondered, is it a lack of urgency? I, I think it's a whole bunch of problems. Um, but I, I'm really interested to hear from you the, the policy solution here before we can even get to the how do we communicate that policy solution to people to see the urgency and mobilise people to, around this to make these solutions happen, which is what that's the role of organising essentially. So what who's, yeah. who's doing great work when it comes to addressing the, uh, the challenges our climate's facing? Yeah, well, this, in, the, in the book, I um, really delve into Denmark as a country that's getting some great results. I mean, Denmark... Um, since the early 1990s has halved its per capita carbon emissions. Um, mm-hmm. It's been quite quite impressive. And that's at the same time as its economy has grown at um, roughly the same rate as Australia's, for example. Um, so Denmark's shown us that you can not only you can um, you can reduce energy consumption, reduce carbon emissions and grow the economy all at the same time. You can decouple economic growth from carbon emissions. It is possible. They've shown us that. And I think uh, what's been really interesting about the Danish approach is that uh, in a lot of ways it hasn't been ideological. Um, And it's been uh, part of the economic growth story of Denmark, whether it be a small rural farming community that I engaged with where um, a conservative rural farming community decided to go to carbon neutrality and, in, and invest in wind turbines as, as a way of stimulating economic growth in that community and repositioning it 
in the face of an aging and you know and declining population um whether it be Copenhagen and its focus on building a sustainable, livable, um, highly competitive city that was built on um, you know, on public transport and cycling and um, you know and 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 and, and low emissions. I mean, that's all part of a story of creating a new country, and it doesn't require people to sign up to some sort of ideological crusade to actually get on board with this agenda. It's just a, a modern progressive agenda about a contemporary economy. Um, and as a result, we've set, what we've seen is bipartisan approaches to climate change in, um, in, uh, in Denmark, the center right, the center right government um, in Denmark, you know, uh, until prior to the last election, um, you know, was was driving was was driving quite a significant um, emissions agenda. I mean, we now had um, you know an agenda that said that uh, you know a twenty eighteen energy agreement, which would be um, transitioning to one hundred percent renewable electricity by twenty thirty. You know, Denmark's already at fifty percent renewable electricity, and it'll be at a hundred percent by twenty thirty, shutting down its last coal fired power station. And that was instituted by the centre right, centre right government in Denmark. You know, and and what's really interesting is that every energy agreement in Denmark is not just signed up signed by the government of the day, but it's also signed by the opposition party as well. Um, and so that's all about securing investment certainty, so that. Um, in those investors who are going to invest in the very expensive multi-billion dollar energy infrastructure can have confidence that if there's a change of government, that the, mm. the policy framework will be um, sustained through that change of government. And if without investment certainty, no one's going to invest. Mm. And, um, and that's one of the problems that's bedeviled Australia is we've had this great, great policy uncertainty about energy, about climate change. And, um, the, the bipartisan sort of approach in, De- in Denmark has been right at the heart of it, I think. It's become our third third rail, third yeah, third rail of um, policy in Australia, and unnecessarily so. And I mm. don't know how we undo that. Yeah, I think the the, the path home has got to has got to involve a, 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 some bipartisan finding a bipartisan sort of uh, agreement somehow, and I think that's the challenge of. Um, mm of the the policy policy wonks inside of government to actually work out a policy framework that's going to work for both sides of politics um that they, that everyone can sign up to um yeah, because it is a, it's a challenge that's not going away uh, it's a challenge that's only going to get harder and worse uh the, the longer it's left um it's in everyone's interest we get on top of it oh, i know and i just fear that the uh if the tories keep on pre-selecting absolute neanderthals that's uh, living in the 1930s, it's just harder to get it through their caucus. You know, it's just the particularly, particularly if they're electing them from electorates that are so reliant on old uh, forms of energy that they're just not going to give up that that real estate, that electoral real estate, which yeah. is a political. Which is a, t- it's, t- a, a, it's a political conundrum. Yeah, but I take heart from someone like Ross Garno in his book recently, for example, and it talks about. The opportunities of um, cheap renewable electricity being, um, you know, and once upon a time Australia's great strength was was cheap electricity and cheap energy driving the industrial base in regional parts of Australia. Um, 
um, in, with global commodities. But increasingly, the the large multinationals and those involved in the global global supply of um, industrial commodities will be seeking cheap zero carbon electricity to supply their products. They'll be looking around the world to find the lowest cost zero zero emissions electricity. And Australia's got all the assets. It's got solar. It's got sun. It's got wind. Um, it's got communities in regional areas with industrial heritage, you know. So, you know, Ros, Ros Garno argues that why couldn't the next aluminium smelter that goes in in the world be in Portland, you know, it's powered by powered by renewable electricity, mm. you know. Um, you know, and so there, there is there is real opportunity to marry together that regional agenda with that industrial agenda with a renewable energy agenda where, you know, where, where, whereby... Um, you know, I think everyone can get on board. I, I, I'm excited by that type of prospect. It needs a bit of uh, bit of uh, leadership, I think. <laughs> I want to um, move away from the um, Scandinavians for for a moment and actually turn to an area of the world in which we, as social democrats, possibly don't uh, look to for um, best practice when it comes to policy development, and that's um, uh, Singapore. Um, you mm. wrote extensively in your book on in particular in education and and the and the and the work that the, the Singaporean government and that have been doing with uh, primary school students and the results that they're finding there can you talk a bit about that yeah I mean there's this thing uh, this is data set called um, PISA um, which is an OECD data set that gives standardized tests to 15 year olds all around the world um, in maths and English and um, reading collaborative problem solving whole range of areas and Singapore just blitzes those results um, achieves the best results um, anywhere in the world it's the average Singaporean student is a year and a half ahead of a uh, Singaporean 15 year old is about a year and a half ahead of the Australian average Australian in maths for example um, and probably and six, years average- ahead, six years ahead of me right now <laughs> <laughs> That's right, quite possibly. Um, and the you know, but the most disadvantaged Singaporean students are achieving results on par with the average Australian student, for example. And I think what's really interesting in in the Singaporean ex- experience is clearly it's got some cultural dimensions in the in that cultural side of things in with uh, the value placed on education by families in a country like Singapore. Clearly, but there's also some some potential transferables in there too. I think there's a couple of things. Firstly, Singapore has a focus on um, government government schools. Um, 98.5% of all schools in Singapore are government schools. Um, there's only a small number of schools that are for sort of expats that are private schools, but also Singaporean students go to government schools. Singapore demonstrates that government schools can deliver the best results in the world. The other thing I think that Singapore focuses on is teaching and the and the absolute centrality and importance of um, of teaching um, and and teachers because um, you know it in, it invests massively in in teaching um, teachers in Singapore get a hundred hours of funding learning funded learning and development every year for example they travel the world to learn from the best they um, they have multiple different pathways that enable them to go on to pursue um, different careers, whether it be as a curriculum expert, for example, or as a, uh, what they call a master teacher, someone who mentors and coaches other teachers or goes into leadership roles in schools. They really value and invest in their teaching. And I think um, 
some of those some of those lessons I think are really powerful for a country like Australia. And whilst we have to be careful that you know, and be of course not everything's transferable. Um, it doesn't hurt to go and take inspiration um, and to expand the type of conversations we're having in Australia and by learning from countries countries that are different to us. Who knew that living under a benevolent dictatorship would produce such great results? Maybe Australia could look at that as well. But we had Kevin Rudd and that didn't work out so well, so perhaps not. <laughs> um, let's turn to, because uh, I'm conscious of the time, um, health. Um, and I think let's, we can probably stay in the same region because I think you did some um, good research in terms of healthcare. Uh, and we're actually also following the m- migratory patterns of Tom Cargill here to um, Korea. <laughs> yeah, we looked at South Korea. And I think, you know, one of the interesting things that really is that South Korea, you know, is it's got the largest increase in life expectancy um of any country in the world um from the 1950s through the korean war when its life expectancy was in south korea was in the 50s it's now well on the way it's now got life expectancy at approximately 84 um south korean women will be very very soon have life expectancy of approximately 90 um and the highest life expectancy in the world um and it's quite incredible when you compare and contrast that with the United States, for example, where life expectancy is going backwards and that, you know, and the, um, and the life expectancy of, uh, of a country like that is being outdone by, by Puerto Rico and Cuba, you know, and, and in the United States is really um, demonstrating um, what not to do in terms of, in terms of health outcomes. But a country like South Korea isn't spending a truckload, isn't spending a truckload on, on health, but what it what it does do is got an efficient universal healthcare system. It's it has some absolutely brilliant hospitals and healthcare. It's and using technology at the heart at the heart of it. Um, and um, but I think the really thing that comes through for South Korea is that you've on the one hand you've got this absolutely top notch um, first world sort of healthcare system coupled with a traditional diet. And I think that's the that's the that's the insight here because the biggest threats to the health of of people in a country like Australia or the United States or the UK is actually um, they're not infectious diseases they're they're lifestyle diseases essentially it's it's obesity it's diabetes it's heart disease it's stroke they're the biggest killers now and they they're the self inflicted diseases that come from from poor diet poor exercise uh, and alcohol abuse and, 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 and smoking. And it's those preventable diseases, I think, that South Korea is actually managed to largely avoid through, um, the, through holding on to a largely a healthy diet. And, and the, the government, for example, supports funded school lunches every day for, for students involving a traditional Korean diet, which is high in vegetables and, and you know, and fibre and that sort of thing. And Great um, it's doing it. Yeah, it's doing everything it can to, um, you know, to try and avoid, try and avoid that. And yeah, you know, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't mind when Korean, I was, Korean lunch every day. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting hungry right now. Um, uh, and I v- was in uh, Seoul last year. Uh, this year's been such a blur that I can't remember what year. Yeah, it was last year. Um, and, you know, you still saw a lot of the American fast food chain restaurants you know, in all the shopping centers and complexes like McDonald's and the KFC and that. Mm. Um, so is it, is it, 
is it the government intervention in programs like school lunches that have been the, the difference? Is it that culturally Korean food um, has had such a stronger impact in the food that they just consume all the time? Like Australia, like Korea's been around a lot longer than Australia and mm. our food base is largely influenced by external factors, really. I mean, we all make the joke about if it wasn't for the Italians and the Greeks and the migration of the 1950s, we'd all still be eating, you know, meat and two veg, right? So yep. we're heavily influenced by the people that have come to this country and brought their wonderful foods and customs with them. Um, but with that, we've also brought in McDonald's and KFC and Burger King and that kind of stuff as well. Um, why has Korea been able to... Uh, manage to navigate that sort of the globalization of food um, and maintain that people are still eating healthy diets. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure, and I'm not sure that it's all government either. To be to be to be fair, I think um, the there's a an identity question that I think that runs through that. Uh, certainly, that's the biggest fear within the career is that everyone that that everyone will revert to. Uh, diet more akin to an american diet and um mm. and that will lead to great obesity and um and, and lifestyle disease and which is why you see those government programs um intervening intervening in schools etc but uh um, i'm not sure there's an easy government solution to that question of <laughs> of diet um but look frankly we've seen some really good public health interventions in, in australia too and and that points to what's possible you look at what the great success of vic health over the years for example in victoria uh through changes to road, I mean, we've, we've got great public health outcomes, whether it be road safety, whether it be reductions in smoking. Um, you know, we're, we're actually quite good at public health in terms of changing behaviour and influencing behaviour so that people um, take decisions that are actually going to prolong their own lives. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic. And Australia Australia's not doing too badly on that front, I think. Um, last question before we go, because I know you've got to run. Um, uh, this is actually a terrible way to end the podcast because you've tried to end it on a <laughs> positive one. I was about to say, where is the area where Australia most drastically needs to address a, a policy challenge from yeah. from the stuff that you have um, researched? In your yeah, oh, climate change clearly. Yeah. You know, we, Australia Australia is amongst in thirty years we've seen essentially no 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 improvement in our per capita carbon emissions. It's um, we really. That's clearly an area where we've done a, a dismal job, but we've talked about that. The other area is probably inequality. Uh, you know, Australia doesn't do particularly well um, when it comes to inequality. We're, we're probably not as bad as some countries, you know, Chile or Mexico or the or the or the US, but um, but we're certainly um, somewhere down the bottom of the OECD league tables in terms of uh, in terms of inequality, whether that be income inequality. Gender, gender inequality, um, you know, and I think one of the the reflections, just to leave you with this, when I um, like you, I, probably, I grew up through the um, through the eighties and, and the nineties, and there was always this big debate about growing the pie versus carving up the pie equally, and you had to choose one or the other. You, you know, on the one hand, the you know the sort of neoliberal agenda was you had to you know focus on growing the pie and if you're going to grow the pie you had to allow inequality and, and on the other hand it was going to carve it up equally what actually all the evidence says now all the data and all the examples and all and all frankly the oecd and the world bank and the imf all now agree is that by carving the pie up more equally um by having reducing inequality that actually leads to greater economic growth 
So you can actually have your cake and eat it too in a lot of ways. And actually, if you allow too much inequality, you're actually constraining your economic growth. We need to be investing in the education of the most disadvantaged people so that they can go on and, and live productive and engaged lives in society. You know, that makes a difference, that stuff. And But the policies the policies on the side of reducing inequality um, and, and, and securing economic growth at the same time, we can have both. Which is a, um, you know, it's the cornerstone of social democratic parties as well. So that's good to hear. Because I, yeah. I know sometimes over over these journeys when we lose elections we sort of go through these sort of spirals of depression and self-doubt about are we actually you know do we have the answers that are going to solve the problems for our for our nation and our globe and it, it's very positive to think about that you know we are on the right track but we just need to persevere hmm. well the countries around the world that are have the highest living standards the um the, the have the greatest living standards the greatest gdp per capita um, that are actually on, on all those traditional economic metrics. They're actually mostly the Scandinavian countries, the, uh, the Northern European countries, and they're the countries that also have relatively low inequality. So there's, there's, a, there's actually an evidence base when it comes to cross-country comparisons showing that you can, um, you know, that low inequality and, and, and economic strength actually go hand in hand. Um, it's, I find that really quite powerful and quite ex- quite exciting. And as a country like Australia, I don't think we should be aiming for anything less than both. Uh, Andy, we thank you very much for taking the time to come out on the show today. I don't want to sound like I'm on the Home Shopping Network, but how do you buy your book? <laughs> yeah, so um, Solved, How Other Countries Have Cracked the World's Biggest Problems and We Can Too. Available now in all good bookstores. Excellent. And can you get it online? And online. Um, you might want to go to the Black Ink um, website um, as the publisher or um, any any of the good um, online bookstores as well. There's a, there's a Kindle version or a hard copy version as well. Excellent. Is there an audio book? People like audio books I'm hearing these days. No audio book yet. Um, you haven't, but, done, you haven't yeah. done the deal with Morgan Friedman to get him to read the book? <laughs> That would be good, but um, maybe, maybe, maybe in future, okay. if, if enough people read it. Very good. Mate, thanks for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. I uh, hope the book goes super well. It's a great book. I encourage everyone to go out there and read it, particularly all the policy wonks. And in fact, idiots like me, we should be reading it too because it's actually going to help us. We're going to learn from this. So I really appreciate the work you put into this. Great. It's an easy read, Stephen. You can e- do it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> you believe in me. I don't appreciate that. Um, uh, so yeah, go out there and, uh, and, and get yourself a copy. Andy, thanks for coming on the show today. Real pleasure, Stephen. Thanks for having me.